Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Community Church. And for those of you joining us online, welcome as well. I'm Pastor Trevor. I am glad you can join us uh, this morning. Um, a, a quick correction. Uh, Matt mentioned that uh, Ronnie, who, if you don't know who Ronnie is, she's our secretary. She puts the bulletins together. She folds them, prints them out. She does all the, prepares all the children materials as well. Uh, so she's um, a, a big blessing to the church. Her surgery wasn't on Friday. Uh, Matt was using, um, not that he was wrong, what he read, he read it correctly, but what was read was wrong. Um, so she's having it tomorrow. So just keep her in prayers. Keep the church in prayers as well as we um, uh, adjust and try to backfill um, the hole that she will be uh, leaving for what we pray is a short, uh, short time, but a necessary time for her well-being. Um, also, uh, for our table talk today, we are going to be talking about the Trinity. And so if you have been participating in our table talk sessions um, and you're curious about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of the three-person uh, uh, the nature of God being one, one God, three persons. If that doctrine intrigues you, even though you have not been part of the discussion uh, before, you are welcome to attend the table talk session following uh, the service uh, today. Before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you on the basis of your mercy, grace, on the work that was finished upon that cross so many years ago. And Father, we ask, in light of what your Son has accomplished for us, and in light of your glory and for your glory, we ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning, that you would remove any attempts that we might make to suppress the truth, that you would help us to submit ourselves to your truth, that your Spirit would convict us and teach us this morning, help us to be focused and attentive, help us to cast aside, to lay down the anxieties, the burdens, the pleasures and the delights of this world, so that we would hear your holy word, gaze upon your glory, gaze upon your truth, and taste of your grace and love. Father, we ask this for your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you believe? What exactly is the content of your faith? Why do you hold on to this faith? Why do you believe what you say you believe. Did you learn it from others, or did you learn it yourself? If you learned it from others, have you ever challenged it? Have you ever pushed back against it? Do you know why they believe what they believed, and do you agree with it? What would happen if the community of faith that raised you disappeared, and you were left alone in your beliefs? Would you still hold on to it? Do you own your faith or does it belong to someone else? Have you reckoned with your faith fully and wholly to where you know, you understand the expectations, the cost that it bears? Do you own your faith enough to trust it no matter the circumstance? In our passage, 2 Kings 12 through 13, and if you haven't opened uh, there already, please go ahead and open up to there. And our chapters, they cover a span of about 40 years from 835 B.C. to 795 B.C. We have three kings. All three kings are raised within a Yahwistic faith system. The first king of our text never owned his faith. The second king was an idolater, yet he still experienced the grace of Yahweh. The third king, who shares the same name as the first king, 
never fully appreciated his faith and the moment that was before him. Our focus this morning is going to be upon the first king and the last king as it is in the text. We need to learn from their mistakes and consider what we must do to truly own our faith and to truly trust it fully. And this is important. Please understand this. This is absolutely critical and vital for our faith because we must prepare ourselves for the day of reckoning. We must slay the idols of our lives before we are forced to do so. We must know and understand what we believe before the smoke of affliction blots out the sun and turns the moon blood red. We must work the field before the rain comes and not try to work it when the rain does come. We must know what we believe before we suffer for what we believe. So without further ado, let us look at the first king, Joash of 2 Kings chapter 12. I'll give an overview of chapter 12 in the first part of 13, and then when we get to the last half of chapter 13, we will actually read that text. So here in 2 Kings 12, we have the boy king. You remember the boy king, Joash, or Jehoash. He is the boy who was hidden away when, after Ahaziah was killed by Jehu, when his relative Jerome, the, the then king of Israel, was slayed by Jehu, then Ahaziah was slayed by Jehu, and that left Ahaziah's mother, Athaliah, to take hold of the throne for herself. And she tried to wipe out all of the children, the descendants of David, but Joash was hidden away in the temple and he was made king at the age of seven. So here we are reminded that he begins his reign at the age of seven and he reigns for 40 years. A nice, long reign, similar to that of David and Solomon. And Joash, he is a true man of Judah, for his mother is from the southernmost city of Judah, Beersheba. She is as far away from the northern kingdom, from the Israel blood, that she can be. And let me clarify this now before I forget. We must not confuse this Joash of Judah with the Joash of Israel, chapter 13. So again, we have two kings of the two different kingdoms uh, with the same name. And both can go by Joash or Jehoash. So we have Joash of Judah, who we're talking about now, and then we will talk about Joash of Israel in a moment. So Joash of Judah, he was considered a good king, but he was considered a good king for one reason. Note it in verse 2. Jehoiada taught him. Jehoiada discipled him. So Joash, he was a faithful king while Jehoiada lived. Joash initiated repairs on the temple. Of course, the temple's been around for over 100 years now. So wear and tear and probably some misuse and abuse towards it, it needs fixing. And so he's faithful in this, though it takes a long time. For 23 years into his reign, Jehoiada and the other priests have been slack in their duties. The text doesn't say that they, that they have misused the funds. They just haven't gotten to the task. They've been storing up the funds, just haven't been using it for the purposes that it needs to be used for. And so in verse 6, uh, Jehoiada, he be, I mean, excuse me, Joash gets on Jehoiada, and Joash eventually creates his own system uh, that allows for the temple repairs to happen. He removes the responsibility from the priests, and the king's house, the king's court takes responsibility for it, and the temple eventually gets repaired. However, it appears that Joash was only faithful while Jehoiada was alive. In verses 17 and 18, we read of Hazael of Syria coming upon Judah, attacking Judah. And in order to repel the invasion, Joash gave away the dedicated gifts of the temple from years past to Hazael. 
This is similar to what good King Asa did. If you remember good King Asa, one of the other few good kings of kings, in 1 Kings 15, Syria comes upon Judah, and King Asa empties out the temple's treasury and all the dedicated gifts that were in it and gives it uh, to Syria to uh, buy them off. So Joash does the same thing here. So after all of that, after all that time to raise money for a temple and its treasury, but when hardship, affliction comes upon it, he empties it to ward off Hazael. Following this stint with Syria, the servants of Joash, they strike him down in the house of Milo, and Amaziah, his son, reigns in his place. So with verse 2 commenting on how Joash was a good king, and yet his reign ending with war and dying via assassination, and an attentive reader, an attentive hearer, one who's in exile, one who's been paying attention to the kings as they are listed in kings would wonder, well, that's not how a good and faithful king goes. Not by assassination, not with one of the curses of breaking the covenant, military invasion upon the land. That's not what happens to the faithful kings. So what happened? Something must have happened. And the immediate text doesn't tell us, but the war and the assassination do hint that though Joash started well, he did not end well. And if you're curious, you can read 2 Chronicles 24 and you'll learn how he did not end well. See, when Jehoiada passes away, Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, is a priest. And Zechariah goes to, Jehoi- goes to Joash and says, why have you forsaken the Lord? Why have you forsaken Yahweh? He calls him out for his sins and Joash doesn't like that. So Joash slays. He murders, he kills the son of the faithful man who raised him in the faith. And as he does so, Zechariah tells him, the Lord will avenge me. And following that, that is when Syria comes upon him. Joash is wounded in battle and he is assassinated as he is recovering from his wounds. So he started well, but he did not end well. Moving on to chapter 13 and verses 1 through 9, we hear of Jehu's son. So now we're moving from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel. We have Jehu's son, Jehoahaz, reigning for 17 years. And he too was an evil king. As such, Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel and Syria was continually harassing the northern kingdom. But note verses 4 and 5. Despite his idolatry, Jehoaz sought Yahweh, and Yahweh listened and thus gave them a deliverer, an unnamed savior that delivered them from the threat of Syria. Now, quite possibly, and I agree with this, though we can't be certain because the text doesn't speak to this, I think this unnamed deliverer is Elisha. Because we see Elisha later in the chapter. We see him referred to as the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. He has numerous times has delivered uh, Israel from the hands of Syria. So I believe it's him, but again, the text does not say so, so we cannot be certain. The point is is that Yahweh in his grace provided a way out when Jehoaz sought favor, sought Yahweh's blessing. However, despite this deliverance, Israel and Jehoaz, they continue in their sin. And because of this, their military might is reduced significantly. Ten chariots, 50 horsemen, and a little over 10,000 footmen. So in Jehoaz places, when he, when he passes away, his son Joash of Israel comes to reign. And he is the second of our two kings that we will focus on. Verses 10 to 13, we get a summary of his reign. 
Joash, or Jehoash of Israel, reigned 16 years. He also, like his father, like Jeroboam, his, like, like Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, also did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And like his father before him, he was buried in Samaria, and his son Jeroboam reigned in his place. Now, don't confuse this Jeroboam with the first Jeroboam. At least this time, there's a distance, a considerable amount of distance of chapters in time. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. This is the second Jeroboam. So historically, we refer to this Jeroboam as Jeroboam the second. So this is Jeroboam. Um, and we're just told that he reigns in this place. We'll get to him next week. Following this summary, we are then given an account of Elisha right before his death that involves Joash of Israel. So let's read this account in verses 14 through 19. Again, this is 2 Kings 13, verses 14 through 19. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. The very words that Elisha said to Elisha upon Elisha's ascension. And Elisha said to Joash, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hand on the king's hands. And Elisha said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And Elisha said, Yahweh's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And Elisha said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now when we, for clarification here, when Elisha says strike the ground with them, he's not talking about taking the arrows and hitting the ground, like he's supposed to just hit the ground with them. He's talking about drawing the arrows and shooting the ground. That's what he means by striking the ground here. So in this account, we have an opportunity that Joash squanders. Joash should have known better. See, he goes and visits Elisha, and Elisha gives him a demonstration. He's given him a final word. He wants to give him a final blessing. And so he shows him, hey, take an arrow, lays his hand, does everything for the king, shows him what the arrow represents, tells him, hey, that's a victory for you. Like, it's a good thing that you shot the arrow out. This is what it leads to. And then he tells him, hey, shoot more arrows, but yet Joash only shot three. So Joash, he should have known better. He had the demonstration. He knew who Elisha was. He knew what Elisha was capable of. He just called him the chariots of Israel and the horsemen of Israel. He knew the power that he contained, that, he, that God had blessed him with. And he knew what Yahweh did for his father when he delivered him, delivered the kingdom from Syria. But yet in this moment of opportunity, Joash never commits himself. In fact, he only does like the bare minimum to entertain Elisha. He wasn't willing to lay it all down. Perhaps he was afraid that Elisha would rebuke him for wasting the arrow. Who knows what he was thinking? But with that opportunity before him, why would he not just shoot all the arrows that he had in his hand? Would it not have been better for Elisha to say, stop shooting, rather than saying, why did you not shoot more? So he missed out on a great blessing. Now let's continue on and read the rest of chapter 13, starting in verse 20. So Elisha died, and they buried him. 
Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Johash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joaz defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So these final verses of chapter 13 show for us the fulfillment of Elisha's prophecy. It also shows the power of Elisha as well that God had blessed him with by giving us an interesting account of Elisha's burial. Again, reminding us that Joash should have acted with more respect, with more eagerness in that moment. So with this resurrection story here, we need to be cautious not to think too much about it. We must not think that because the bones of Elisha caused a, a dead man to rise from the grave that there, we should be collecting special ancient relics of, of apostles and famous religious people beforehand as if they can hold a special power, as if they should be revered. That's a false teaching. We should avoid that. We should flee from it. It's a form of divination and supernatural evil to believe such things and to practice such things. Grave soaking would be perhaps a modern day equivalent. Uh, some people still hold to the fact that, or the belief that relics hold special power and special anointing, but grave soaking, people laying on top of graves, like you go to the grave of C.S. Lewis, lay on it, and you try to get a special anointing of, of writing and reason from him that he possesses. It's, it's ridiculous. But this account here, what we have here, and, and, and do note this, one man rises from the grave, right? If you threw a dead person on some bones and he got up and walked away, wouldn't you go get other dead people and see if it worked again? I mean, I personally would, right? I would probably find a loved one, try to dig them up and throw them on, on the bones of Elisha or maybe bring the bones of Elisha to the dead person. I'll try this first in case it wasn't just the bones of Elisha, right? Try to keep the, the situation the exact same. But we only read of one person being raised. It's not, this isn't the norm. This is an exception, but it doesn't mean it's not without its purpose. It has a point. This account is a reminder of God's power in and through death, especially to those who are in exile. Remember, Keynes is collected, is compiled for those who are in exile, for God's people who have already been um, removed from the promised land and are now in exile. So he's reminding his exiled people, death is not final. And that the power of Elisha, the power of Yahweh, is still living and active, though the man of God, the great man of God, the horses and chariots of Israel, is past. And note what is coupled with this resurrection account. Note what is said in verse 23. It reminds us again of the invasions of Syria upon Israel, but it reminds us again that God delivered them. And it tells us why. God was merciful and he showed compassion for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. What is the text referring to there? The Abrahamic covenant. And no, it's not the Davidic covenant, right? And why is it not the Davidic covenant? Because we're talking about the kingdom of Israel, not the kingdom of Judah. The Davidic covenant applies to the southern kingdom, to the house of David, not to the ten tribes. They benefit from it, 
but the Davidic covenant is made with the house of David, not with the ten tribes. However, the Abrahamic covenant most certainly does apply to the northern kingdom. So here, because of God's love, because of his covenantal love, because of the Abrahamic covenant, which he will not go back on because he made it with himself, the people of God are reminded the covenants are still in play here. Yes, you're in exile. Yes, the man of God has passed. Yes, there's been great sin, but God is faithful. He will not abandon his people. So we have this coupled with this resurrection event so the people of God are encouraged. They're reminded that even in death, God's power is living and active. As such, unlike Joash of Israel and Joash of Judah, the people of God are reminded to trust God fully, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of where their faith may lead. So, how do we wrestle with this today? Where does this leave us? Well, we must be sure that the faith that we ascribe to is our faith, and not simply our parents' faith, nor our nation's faith, or the, the faith of our culture, but our faith. And in doing so, we must understand what the expected cost is and what the expected return or reward is of our faith. And thankfully, like Joash of Judah, who had Jehoiada as a faithful guide, we have a priest also who instructs us and guides us. However, unlike Jehoiada, our priest is a great high priest who is already resurrected and who is with us always. He will never leave us. He will not die and disappear on us. So I want to look at two key New Testament texts that are found in the Gospels that speak to the cost and expectations of our faith. The first is Mark 8, 34, 38. You can go ahead and turn there. It will be on the screen as well. The second, just so you know, if you're taking notes, is Luke 14, um, 26 through 35. I'm not going to speak to the whole of this passage, uh, but I will read the passage. I will speak to the whole of this passage um, in our next sermon series uh, following Kings uh, sometime in May. So let's go ahead and read Mark 8, uh, verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him, that's Jesus, with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So the first and last verse is where I want to focus our attention. And let's begin with the last verse, verse 38. This is important because if we fail to listen to verse 34, then verse 38 is the consequence. And verse 34 tells us how we are able to avoid the consequence of verse 38. So let us understand the consequence. So let's read verse 38 again. For whoever is ashamed of me, that's Jesus, in my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is a verse of judgment. And I know, and I know many today love to remove judgment from any type of preaching, any type of biblical teaching. They just, it's almost like judgment doesn't exist in Scripture. But here we have it. Verse 38. One of many verses that speak of judgment. And note what it's linked to. Those who are ashamed of Jesus and 
his words. Again, you cannot divorce Jesus from Scripture. They are one in the same. It's not Jesus or his words, as if you get to choose. It's Jesus and his words. You, you can't say that you are not ashamed of Jesus and yet disobey his command. Because when you disobey his command, you're essentially being ashamed of him. When society says, do you actually believe what scripture says? And you say, well, yeah, yeah, most of it except this part. Well, why not that part? Well, it makes me uncomfortable. It's old. It doesn't really speak to today. It's unpopular. I don't want people to hate me. That's you being ashamed of his words. And the consequence is that when he returns, he will be ashamed of you, which means you will be cast out. You will not enter into the kingdom. So hear this. And please, please, please hear this. This is not mere opinion. Because I know some of you sit here, you hear me speak, and go, oh, that was a good sermon. But in your head, you're thinking, well, that's his opinion. That's what he thinks. There's a reason why I use a plethora of verses and passages in my sermons. Because in an age of skepticism, when hardly anyone ever believes what Scripture, scripture says, I use Scripture redundantly to show the point that is made redundantly in Scripture so that you know it's not my opinion. It's God's teaching. It's, it's, not his, it's, it's his word. It's his voice. I'm just, I'm just a messenger. I'm just telling you what it says and helping you understand it. You need to stop suppressing the truth that's causing you to be comfortable with your sin. Because if you continue to suppress the truth, you continue to be ashamed of the words of Christ, when he returns, he will be ashamed of you. And what would you have gained? What would you have profited? Nothing. So hear the word. Therefore, having recognized his consequence, how do we live so that we are not ashamed of him in his words? Well, we go back to the first verse, 34. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if you are to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, in other words, if you are to be a believer, if you are to be found in the faith, what is required of you? And you would say, well, that's simple, faith. Faith alone, right? And that you're right. Faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. That's all you need. But what is faith? What do we mean by faith in Christ? Is it just some arbitrary term with no boundaries, no, no clarifications? No. Jesus tells us right here. He's, he's telling us exactly what faith in him looks like. Faith, trust in Christ, because that's what we mean by faith, looks like three things, and these three things are not separate things. It's not like, well, I can do this thing and not do this thing. No, you need all three things. It's all or nothing. The first as Jesus says, it is denial of oneself, a denial of who you are, of everything that you are, a denial of the identity of the person that you were born. You need that new birth. Don't believe when the world or other mega churches tell you this, when they say, don't worry, God accepts you as you are, that Jesus will accept you as you are. That's a lie. Think about this. If Jesus accepts you as you are, why is he now telling you to deny yourself? Because clearly, whoever you are isn't good enough. He, if he accepts you as you are, 
apart from him, he wouldn't have to say, deny yourself. He would say, come along, bring yourself as you are. No, he says, deny yourself. You go to him as you are, yes, right? Praise God. We go to him in our messiness. We go to him with our fear, filth, with our sins. But we don't go to him thinking he's going to accept us. No, we go to him fully knowing that we must deny ourselves and that in despite ourselves, he will make us new. He will change us because he doesn't accept us as we are. If he, why would he send his son? Why would he send his spirits if we were good enough? But he did because we're not good enough because he doesn't accept us as we are. He accepts us as we come to him, as we deny ourselves. He will receive us, yes. But he will not accept you in the condition that you are. You must deny it. The second thing is picking up your cross. And let's clarify what this means to bear your cross. This cross that Jesus mentions here is not some affliction. It's not some burden. It's not cancer. It's not a disability. It's not a toxic work environment. It's not poverty. It's not that horrible coworker or that spouse you have to put up with. It's not children by any means. Because unbelievers endure such things. Are they picking up the crosses that Jesus is telling them to pick up? No. So what does Jesus speak of here when he speaks of pick up your cross? Jesus, again, this is all coming down to identity. We spoke about this last week with different passage, different texts. This is the reality. This is the teaching of Scripture. Jesus is saying you must be willing to identify with him in his suffering, in his rejection, in his scorn and hate that he received for who he was. A public rejection, not one in secret, one that's done out in the open as he's walking to Calvary. You must be willing, as you deny yourself and lay yourself down, you must identify with Jesus in his suffering. And the hatred that he experiences from the world. Because when you follow Jesus, which we'll get to in a moment, it takes you to Calvary. And you can't get to Calvary. You're not going to Calvary unless you have a cross. The only people who go to Calvary are those who carry crosses. That's where Jesus goes. We want to follow him. We must not be surprised we endure the same thing. Jesus in John 15, 18, 19 tells his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before I hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you must be ready for the weight of the cross. And if you have denied yourself, you can endure it, because you have nothing to lose. William Gurnell, a Puritan of the 17th century, says it well. I came across this last night. Why should you fear to be stripped of that which you have resigned already to Christ? It is the first lesson you learn to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow your master so that the enemy comes too late. You have no life to lose because you've given it already to Christ. Nor can man take away that without God's leave. All you have is insured. And though God has not promised you immunity from suffering in this kind, yet he has undertaken to bear the loss, indeed to pay you a hundredfold. And you will not stay for it till another world. Therefore, if you do these two things, denying yourself, pick up your cross, then you're ready to do the third thing, which is follow Jesus. Taking the cross all the way to Calvary. As you keep his word, as you stand your ground unashamedly, as you obey it. 
So in doing these three things, you are walking in faith. You are living the faith as your own, and you are trusting it. More specifically, we are trusting him. This will help us to endure to the end. And when faced with affliction, abandonment, uncertainty, we will not be ashamed of him and his words. We will stand, come what may, whatever the cost. We will not waver like Joash of Judah. We will, we will not be hesitant to seek blessing like Joash of Israel. Let's go to our second New Testament text. Luke 14, 26, 35. Go ahead and, and turn there if you're able. It will be on the screen, of course. This text will help us understand the cost and expectations of our faith more explicitly in case there's any, more, in case there's any confusion or any uncertainty about what we just discussed in Mark 8, 34, 35, Luke 14, 26, 35. Jesus spells it out, I think, with a greater heaviness and more explicitly. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, in other words, if anyone wants to be his disciple, if anyone wants to enter into the kingdom, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now note that there. Cannot be my disciple. That's in the indicative. That means it's, it's a fact. It's a truth. It's a reality. It's not a subjunctive. It's not something that like, well, he might not be my disciple or there's not much hope. No, there's no hope for him. Either you are or you're not my disciple. If you don't do these things, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, again, he repeats it, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able of 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's an altar call, right? I mean, literally, that is an altar call. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, right? Imagine a pastor saying, you know, at a good Baptist church where, or wherever they do altar calls and just saying, all right, so, you know, sermons over like any of you who are heavy laden, you, you're weary, you're tired, and you want to come to know Jesus. You want to come and know the rest that Jesus Christ offers you, the love of Christ. Come to the front now, and we'll pray for you. But before you do, make sure that you hate your wife, you hate your father, your mother, you hate your children. Make sure you even hate yourself, because if you don't, you can't come. Don't even bother coming up to the table. Don't even bother coming to the altar, because you cannot be the disciple of Christ. You cannot know him if you don't hate everything before me. Imagine that. Like, that wouldn't fly. Your church is going to get small real quick. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. If anyone is to come after me, why do we not teach this? 
Why is this not preached? And there's consequences for this because no one reckons with their faith. They come to Jesus not knowing the expectations, the cost, the, what, is, what faith is in this world, what it will cost you. And so they think they're saved and affliction comes upon them and they flee the faith. They're confused. They miss out on the blessings of the faith, the, the peace, the joy, the abundant life that they're called to have because they never wrestled with the cost. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, essentially, he's saying Mark 8, 8, 34 with different words, right? He's just expounding it. And all of this is summed up in verse 33, where he says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all, that includes all the relationships he talked about, he's essentially saying your identity, right? Again, what does identity tell us about ourselves? The relationships we hold, our roles, our purposes, our value, our worth. We have to renounce all of that. If we, were, if we are to be his disciple. And as we understand the context here in Luke, as well as what's taught in Scripture as a whole, the meaning of Jesus' words here when he says, hate your wife, hate your parents, hate your kids, your spouse, hate, hate everyone, what he is saying is that you're not hostile to them, but the relationship with Christ must be the priority. They must be second. They must come after him. He dictates how you live. Not the schedule of your children's sports or academics. Not the schedule of your passions or hobbies. Christ comes first. The lives of your children cannot dictate your faith of Christ. What is there to gain if your children, if you spend your entire adulthood raising your children, you raise them well, as society says you do. You support them in their athletic pursuits or their academic pursuits but you neglect Christ. You make Christ second. Maybe they go on and they win more Super Bowls than Tom Brady. Well, they die. What did they gain if they didn't gain Christ? If Christ wasn't the priority? Well, they get remembered by people. Well, what does that do to the person who's dead? And the people who remember them, they're going to die sooner or later. Memory, remembering dead people does nothing to the one who's in the grave. It is of no help, no benefit. So what glory are we trying to teach our kids to pursue when they have the glory of Christ before them and we make Christ second to all things? You cannot be his disciple if you live that way. The belief system of your spouse or your parents cannot dictate your belief in Christ, your faith in Christ. Do not think that love for neighbor trumps love for God. Not think that, well, I'm maintaining peace in the family, in the household. I'm maintaining peace with my neighbors. I am well respected. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the world. To your soul, yes, if you go to him. He came to bring a sword, right? He talks about this elsewhere. Division. To divide families over him. Don't think that for the sake of your neighbor, you can trump the, the first and great commandment of love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. In fact, you're not doing the second commandment faithfully. Love your neighbor right if you're not doing the first right. You will love your children, your family, your co-workers, everyone in your life best if Christ is priority, if he is number one, if he is the compass of your life. Your own passions, your own desires of your own heart, they cannot guide your faith or behavior in Christ. You must renounce it, all of it. Right? This idea that you just wash your face and be you, it's ridiculous. It's idolatrous. It's unfaithful. It's unholy. You need to deny yourself. You need to recognize that outside of Christ, 
you are worthless. You need to deny yourself and find your worth in him. A worth that this world cannot comprehend. A worth that gives you abundant joy and peace in all things. So consider what is being asked of you. Consider what the life of a believer entails. Consider what his holy word says it does. And ask yourself, are you willing to give it all of that up for him? Are you ready for affliction? Are you ready for the suffering? Are you ready for the next pandemic? Or are you once again going to be saying, oh, I never expected this. I never thought that in a fallen world, death and suffering might enter into my life. Even though it's preached on rather regularly, at least here I hope, but many of you, that's how some of you act. You hear the words, but you don't reckon with it. You don't sit down with it. Weep now when you are able to. Weep on your own terms if you must before God forces his hand upon you. Are you ready for the sacrifice? Have you counted the cost? Do you understand what's at stake here? What you will lose if you don't. But do you understand what there is to gain for doing so? Peter, at one time, wasn't sure what there was to gain, so he asked Jesus. In Matthew 27 and 29, and verse 29 is especially our focus, Peter said to Jesus, and this is just after the rich man walked away, right? The rich man says, I've done all these things. And Jesus is like, well, give up your money, and he couldn't do it. And Jesus tells him, it's hard for a rich man to enter in the kingdom because of his possessions, because of his wealth. So Peter says, we have left everything, and he means everything, and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, specifically disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And, this verse is for us, everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and most importantly, will inherit eternal life. If you struggle to understand why anyone would give up so much, let the words of Paul help you. Philippians 3, 8, 11. Stay in Luke because we are not done with it, but you can follow along for Philippians on the screen. As we read this, ask yourself, are you living this way or not? Because this is the way. And I mean that literally. I know Mandalorian has popularized that term. This is the way. But this is truly the way. This is the narrow road that leads to the narrow gate that leads to everlasting life. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, for his name, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, when you see that phrase there, in order that, that's a purpose statement, right? So he's, he counts all this loss for one reason, that he may gain Christ. And this is coming from a man who has already gained Christ. He is already justified. He's already sanctified. He's already an apostle of the Christ of our Lord Jesus. But yet he's still saying, I do all this that I may gain Christ because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, of the knowledge of it. And be found in him, now having a righteousness of my own, because Paul recognizes he's not worth it. 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How did Jesus die in his sleep? No. Horribly, publicly, in humiliation, on a cross. Not in a very pleasant way at all. And he's saying this is worth it for the surpassing knowledge, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And then in verse 11, that by any means possible. Again, this is, these are words from a man who's already attained the resurrection. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When is the last time you prayed that? When is the last time you went to Father in heaven and said, Father, by any means possible, help me know your son more. Break me if you must. Slay the idols in my life, not knowing what idols you may have. Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's your job. Have you asked God, hey, bring in suffering if you must. Are you truly seeking the knowledge of Christ? Or do you only want the knowledge of Christ as long as it's comfortable? As long as we maintain our religious liberty, as long as we maintain America, as long as certain circumstances exist, keep giving me Jesus. But the minute you bring hardship on me, stop it. Or do we desire the knowledge of Christ more, as we're called to? As we close, hear the warning that Jesus gives back in Luke 14, in verses 34 and 35. I'll read it again. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is making the point that if you are not his disciple, right, this is the context, if you're not his disciple, you are like salt has lost its taste. And what does that mean? What does Jesus say? You're worthless. You're not even good for the manure pile. Our sewage has no use for you. We're not even going to flush you down the drain. We're just going to throw you out. So how do you not remain worthless? By being his disciple. And again, what does that mean? That means that you must renounce everything other than Christ himself. For in him you find everything. You lack joy in your life? Christ has it. You lack peace in your life? Christ has it. You lack like a good, healthy view of who you are? Like you lack your self-esteem? Christ will make you feel good about who you are because he's in you and about what he has done, because of what he has gone to to save you in spite of yourself. He has everything. In Christ, you find purpose, you find worth, you find value. More specifically, in him, you find everlasting life. You get to experience the resurrecting power that raised the dead man upon touching Elisha's bones. Therefore, whatever you renounce and consider lost, it is well, well worth losing. And if you reckon this now, if you reckon with this truth now, if you count the cost now rather than later, then you are in a better position to serve and to know Christ well. You will be quick to fire all the arrows in the quiver that when Christ gives you arrows, you will fire all of them to gain all the blessings that you can of God because you have nothing to lose. You only have to gain. You will not be like Joash of Israel, partially committed. You'll be all in and you will experience the fullness of God's blessing both here and into eternity. 
And you won't be like Joash of Judah. You'll be committed because it's not, it's not the faith of another. It's your faith. So the person who discipled you, no matter how faithful they are, when they die or if they abandon the faith, you will stand your ground because you have already reckoned it lost. You have already counted the cost. You have already come to terms and with peace in your head, I will endure whatever it takes to know my Lord Jesus Christ who was rejected and abandoned by all to include the disciples. This reckoning of your faith will help you weather the storms of despair and unfaithfulness. When the fathers and mothers of your life are called home or when they abandon the faith, you will be equipped and ready to be the lone witness because you yourself, not somebody else, you know Jesus. This is the faith that moves missions. This is how you get from West Salem, Wisconsin to North Korea, to Afghanistan, to Somalia for the name of Christ. But it begins here in West Salem, in the Cooley region with the local church. If you can't do it here, you won't do it there. If you haven't wrestled with this reality of sacrifice in your mind, forget serving Christ anywhere because you're useless here and there. A faith that is trusted, a faith that is personal, is seen within the local church when you give your time, your talents, and your treasures to the purposes of the kingdom. When you lay down the busyness of your life to make time for brothers and sisters in Christ. When you put to death your social anxieties. When you stop making excuses to avoid being uncomfortable around others and partake in life groups. Some of you struggle to live this faith as we're called to live it because you lack community. You don't have brothers and sisters in Christ walking with you, praying with you, challenging you, holding you accountable, making you not feel so alone, helping you to share that burden, equipping you. You fail to shoot the arrow that God has given you in your quiver. You're just shooting one. I'm going to Sunday service as if that's, that's good enough. God has given you a plethora of arrows. Shoot all of them as often as you can. This faith is an all-in faith where you are either all in or you're not in it at all. You can't have one foot on the plane, one foot in a little hallway thing that leads you to the plane. You're either all in or you're not in it at all. You can't baptize the whole body and leave your arm that fights uh, with the sword above the water as if you can keep part of you unclean and the rest of you clean. You're either completely clean or none of you, none of you of you is clean. You're either all in Christ, or not in him at all. Get out of your mind this idea of American Christianity where you get to decide how to serve Christ, as if it's a menu or a buffet. Here's Christ. Choose what you want. All these, all these blessings of Christ are yours, depending on what you want to do. No. It's all or nothing. It's a take it or leave it. Don't play the game. If you're playing the game, just stop. If you don't want to believe in Christ, fine. Like, admit it. But for your sake, I mean, come know Christ. But don't pretend that you know Christ when you know deep down you don't know Christ. Because you're going to come to church, you're going to serve the church, you're going to give time to church, but you're just going to end up in hell anyway. Make sure you know Christ. Reckon with it now. You don't know if you have next Sunday. You don't know if you have tomorrow morning. Don't wait. 
Now is the time. And when Christ returns in all of his glory, and he looks at you, and you look at him, you cannot say, especially those of you who are hearing me now, you cannot say that you weren't told, that you weren't warned, that God did not speak to you, because he has, and he is. But take heart, because if you are still breathing, and I think most of you are, you know you haven't, and you know you haven't been all in, or if you fear you have failed in being faithful in any way in this expectation, go to him. He's not going to reject you. He won't cast you out. Even Jehoaz, who was committing idolatry, when he sought Yahweh, Yahweh responded. Yes, Christ won't accept you as you are, but he will accept you as you come to him, and he will change you. So submit yourself to Christ. Go to him in grace. Ask him for help. Ask him for courage. Ask him for strength. Ask him for faith. Be like the centurion that said, Jesus, help my unbelief. Pray that prayer. As you pray, by any means necessary, Father, do what you need to do, but also ask, Father, help my faith. Give me courage. Give me strength. Give me boldness. Admit you're a coward. Admit you're weak. That's fine. I pray that regularly. Pray those things. Confess it to God. Let him be your strength. Let him be your steadfastness, your cornerstone. Trust him. He is with you. He is patient. Part of denying yourself and taking up your cross is acknowledging your shortcomings, even as a believer, even when you should have known better. So let us work out our faith, our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 2.12. And then in 13, knowing that God, it is God who works in us, and it's, he does so to his good pleasure and to his good will, so we trust him. He will be faithful to complete it. So if you feel like, I can't do this, you're right, you can't. Praise God, you know that. Now praise God that you have his son and his spirit and go to him and rejoice in his mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the examples of the Joe Ashes of Judah and Israel. Father, you know where everyone in this room stands in relation to you. You know how we have been walking you know those of us who've been walking in light, those of us who've been walking in darkness. Maybe some of us have been trying to walk the line or walk between the two worlds. I ask that your spirit this morning would convict as needed, that it would judge as needed, but it would teach us and console us as well. Father, if there are people here who have been cut by your word, by your truth, by your spirit, may your grace abound, especially towards them. May, may they know your mercy. May they drink of your compassion and your covenantal, everlasting, never-ending love and faith for us, Father, for your people. We thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We thank you that though you don't accept us as we are, you accept us as we are. Wait. You, you will change us, Father, that despite who we are, you receive us as we recognize that we need to be changed, that we need a new birth. Help us with that, Father. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that even in our best efforts, when we trip, when we stumble, when we misspeak, you forgive us. You still teach us. So, Father, help us to lean upon you. Help us to lean upon one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to love one another in this respect. As we seek to submit to one another out of reverence and service, to your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Father, we ask that you would bless the elements before us, the, the cup and the bread as we come to it, that you would encourage us this morning as we confess our sin to you, that we would come to the table rejoicing over what your son has done on the cross, that he died in our place for our sin, that his shed blood has accomplished for us a forgiveness of sin and has reconciled us to you, and also points us to the end when he will return, Father. And we anxiously await his return. We ask that he would return quickly. Until he does, Father, help us to live in holiness. Help us every day to be a living sacrifice, as you call us to be. Help us to deny ourselves, pick up a cross. Help us to reckon, ourselves, or reckon uh, this faith. Help us to consider the cost daily. Help us to be prepared to make that cost that faith in your Son requires. Father, we ask all of these things by your mercies, your many mercies, and by your overwhelming glory in the power of the spirits and in the blood and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, we'll go into communion. If you are a believer uh, who's not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, you uh, take, take time, uh, pray, confess any sins that you are uh, dealing with that you need to confess. Ask the Father, ask the Son and Spirit to guide you, to continue to guide you in repentance and in faithfulness. And then when you are ready, come on up, uh, grab the elements, take them to your seats, uh, consume them, and then we'll close out um, a couple more songs of praise.